Okay, welcome to your prison slash the podcast. Is this the actual beginning? Yeah, this is the actual beginning. Hell yeah, we're doing this. We are doing it. You're my partner in most things in life, and you're also my partner in this podcast because we've been talking about stuff like this for a while. Um, so I'm excited to finally be recording something. We've been talking about doing a podcast together for years at this point i wanted to do a podcast in some form or a vlog but then i remembered that i would have to be at a computer to edit it <laughs> and now that you have those skills and are excited and willing to do it yeah i'm feeling vaguely euphoric it's delightful oh good i'm glad um you sound very calm so that's I'm nice for you. really trying i know <laughs> <laughs> the problem with podcasting as Devin is now finding out is that you can't like shake your leg or move around or like tap on things um which that's is very difficult counter to the way i exist yeah so we'll see we'll see i'm sure our audience will understand if they hear some wiggling about <laughs> um so Devin and i have been on a spiritual journey separately and together in different times in our lives um we're finally in a much more similar place, I think, than we've been in for a very long time. Decades at least. Yeah. <laughs> How long have we known each other at this point? Like eight, well, eight years? I remember, well, no, you were still, you had just learned to walk. Oh my God, first... that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd say eight years. Yeah, so freshman year of college, we met on like the first day because we were both in the honors program. And we immediately understood that we would not be friends. Yeah, we did not like each other. <laughs> we had very opposite approaches to just about everything. Still do. Yeah, but we, not quickly, but we eventually realized that even though we have different approaches to things, we often come to the same conclusion eventually. And that's something that I appreciate about you is you can kind of show me alternative ways of thinking about things and arriving to things. And that has been helpful in my own journey of understanding how I can stretch my ideas of spirituality. Well, thank you. It's an honor. Um, yeah. I would like to reciprocate that in some way. <laughs> but I think I have far been more adventurous in that yeah. regard historically. So I usually pull a little bit. <laughs> yeah, you do. I think in different ways, like the way our friendship has always worked is like one of us pulls ahead and the other comes along. And yeah. like you usually with like spirituality are someone who forges ahead and I kind of come along with that's, that. That's very true. That is, yeah. So even though you can't necessarily reciprocate, <laughs> um, I, there are other pieces in our lives where, like, the opposite is true. So. I 480% agree with that. <laughs> so spirituality has been a big part of your life for a while. Um, pick, Give me a little bit of a picture of, like, before spirituality was in your life and then how it was introduced to you. Yeah, yeah. So I don't honestly have, like, a first memory of spirituality but spirituality for me was always church originally and I didn't grow up going to church I had a caregiver my great-grandmother actually 
um, my mom was super young when I was born and um, she worked. So she would send me over to spend time with my great grandmother before I was in school. So I would have been two or three. I was, I remember I was small enough that she'd give me baths by hand in her sink. Mm. So I, I don't know how old I was, but I was very small. And she, um, she would go to church. She was the only person in the family, really, that she'd been going to church her whole life. And she was my first spiritual example. And she was like, kind of nice, I guess. She, she was terminally ill, didn't have use of her legs my entire lifetime. So she had a wheelchair to get around. She was always in pretty bad health. Not particularly happy or excited about things, but she would talk about God a lot. And the church she took us to, took me to, was Clayton Bible Church in Clayton, Michigan, small town. I don't understand how, like, people live there. It's one of those towns that's just kind of in the middle of nowhere, mm. next to no places to work with, like, no natural resources. <laughs> You're like, how are you surviving? So, yeah, I, I guess there was, like, a hardware store because mm. there's always a hardware store. <laughs> maybe... We'll need hardware more than food. Maybe a lumber mill. Maybe... I. It must be like agricultural because it was in the middle of nowhere and southern Michigan is pretty big into like corn and uh, like cow, cow farming, like factory style cow farming. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, so we went to this little church and I would say the average age of the attendance when I was a kid, mind you, I was a kid. So my perspectives were off. It's probably <laughs> like 70. They were very yeah. old. Like yeah. the one of the most prominent members of the church had survived Pearl Harbor oh, and wow. like his whole faith story was like how he saw a bullet like about to hit him and then it like dropped in front of him. Mm. And there was like a light that like shone where the bullet should have hit him. Mm. And then like the bullet fell and like that was his testimony. And so I don't know how old he was, but you have to have been pretty old to have been at Pearl Harbor. So I, when I was growing <laughs> up, I would often ask my mom like, well, what proof do we have that God exists? And she would give me all these wild stories that she had heard from World War II about like, very similar stuff to that. That's very interesting. I wonder if there's any type of pattern there. But I think it was very foundational to a lot of people's beliefs, it seems. Yeah. So that was like my early experience with spirituality. But like it sucked. I hated it, honestly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> From the time I was young, like we'd go and the pastor would say some stuff that I like didn't understand or connect with or care about. And then tell people what to do. And then Sunday school was terrible. I didn't like the other kids. I mean, I grew up in a very white area and I'm biracial, so I'm like the blackest person most people in my area knew. Mm. And so like the kids weren't racist, but like I was always treated different. And that was not like unique to my church thing, but like the kids weren't particularly nice. The Sunday school teachers, I mean, I'm coming to terms with the fact that I might have ADHD, mm. but I've been an energetic person my whole life. And I'm sure that was far more exaggerated when I was a kid. Um, but yeah, like the Sunday school teachers weren't particularly nice and I felt like I had heard all the stories by the time I was like four. So I would get in trouble for being like, didn't we learn about this like last year? And they'd be like, it's the Bible, you need to hear more. <laughs> so I was never into it. Um, and then my mother was never particularly spiritual and my mother was young, so we lived with her parents as well, my grandparents, and they weren't particularly spiritual. I have no spiritual memories of them. And then when I was about seven or eight um i would have been uh, maybe a little bit younger six or, six or seven i think my mom just had like a big spiritual awakening she was just like at a county fair and there was a gideon bible stand and 
they offered her one and she just like read the whole thing and was like totally convinced and then wow. I, I obviously to hear her tell it it's a little bit more profound and meaningful <laughs> because yeah. from my perspective as a kid it just meant that we had to spend a half an hour each way in the car mm -hmm. to go to a place that I had to struggle to stay awake at around people that I didn't like at a building that I thought was weird and smelled bad. Mm -hmm. And we, we stayed at this church for probably five years. I made some friends over time and like I got to know people, but I never wanted to be there. I never enjoyed going. I didn't like singing. How did her parenting style change with that? Yeah, yeah, that was the other thing, too, because when I was a kid, like a very, very, very young kid, like un younger than five, there weren't a lot of like rules. Mm. I mean, I like <clears throat> my grandparents at the time were in a motorcycle club. And so the bikers would come around and like everybody would be like partying and swearing and there'd be like big fires and like the whole like biker community was like my primary community as like a very young child mm -hmm. and they're like a pretty rough group i mean they're everything you'd expect them to be <laughs> i i loved hanging out with the bikers and they accepted me and they treated me well even though like they were actually kind of white supremacists i guess at, mm. at the time um they treated me well because my grandfather was the chairman and i had so much fun like they would they they lived they would live they mm. would I mean, probably because they were drunk, probably because they were living outside of whatever laws they decided they wanted to, but like they didn't care. They, they did things that they thought were fun and they lived for the way the wind felt in your hair and hmm. they just did whatever they wanted. And that's how my grandfather was and that's how my grandma still pretty much is to the extent that they can because they're older now, but the spirituality was not a part of it. It was just about, like, doing things, you know. Um, yeah. And so as a kid, like, I could do whatever I wanted. Like, there were no... There were, you know, enough rules to, like, get by in society. But, like, there were no rules that I found nebulous. Mm. And I was a kid. Mm -hmm. But then when we became Christians, some of my favorite music was Korn, the band Korn. It's like a 90s heavy rock band. My mom yeah. loved it. I still have like very nostalgic reactions to Freak on a Leash, <laughs> which scared my friends in college because I'd be like yeah. doing dishes, like having a nice Sunday afternoon with like corn blaring while I'm doing house cleaning. And they'd be like, it is what? quite disturbing. What the hell is say. this devil music? And I was like, oh, it's corn. Like it's low key. And so like. It's very much not low key. To me, it's low key. <laughs> I have like very positive, like yeah. familial, warm reactions to this music. And it's like very like dark heavy rock um but like that was my mom's favorite music and like r kelly we used to listen to a lot of r kelly before mm -hmm. that was is publicly problematic mm -hmm. and um i remember like the fujis i loved the music i loved the things we would do we would do a lot of like traveling on the weekends and go places and then when my mom decided that we had to go to church like we did way fewer weekend trips because we would go to church twice a day mm. on Sundays and then at a certain point we started going on Wednesday nights so the church had claimed two days in my week and my parents were tired from getting up Sunday morning so we'd come back we'd eat we'd take a nap and then we'd have to go back to church that night and that was my whole day and I didn't want to be there I didn't feel like I was learning anything valuable I didn't feel like I was making connections I valued 
I, I couldn't listen to the music I wanted. My mom tried to get me to listen to like, she, she tried to censor my music so that I'd only listen to Christian stuff, Christian artists, Christian messages. And I tried to listen to Pillar and Switchfoot and uh, Skillet. Those were the, the big <laughs> ones at the time. Yeah. And they were fine. They had an edginess to them that I kind of vibed with. But the instrumentation in Christian music, I find, especially from like the early 2000s, I feel like the artists knew that it was a small, a small pool. And so they just didn't have to try that hard. They could put out yeah. anything and all the parents would push their teenagers to it. And so I was never impressed. Like anything that I heard coming out of the world, I always much preferred in movies. Like I, my favorite movie as a kid was Scream because he was a lady killer. And I know that's terrible, <laughs> but I had a Scream mask and a little oh knife and I like to dress as um, like the, the killer <laughs> from the movies um I, I dresses him all the time like for halloween and just like around the house like i thought it was so cool which there's definitely problems to be addressed there <laughs> um but like that was my experience and then all of a sudden my parents decided that i could only watch movies that were rated g and i was like well, well get out of here with that like <laughs> this makes no sense and so my mom too is a woman who cares and tries the best that she can, but she was 15 when I was born. And so she was inconsistent. And I am, have always been the type of person to remember everything and like note inconsistencies and you wield them as weapons toward my own freedom. Yeah. Um, so I, I butted with my mom a lot as she would try to like bring me back to the Christian path and get me around Christian media. As the radio at the time was telling her all the ways in which the media of the world would corrupt me and I was already gone. I didn't feel positively about it. Um, but we stayed with it. And then when I was around 11 or 10, um, my mom got pregnant with her first child with John, my stepdad, who was my primary father figure since I was about two. Um, and he and she decided to switch churches so that they're like, they would start a family and like a new church that had more programs for youth, which I was like, of course, we worry about youth programs after we have the new kid, but I'm over that. <laughs> Clearly over that. To totally over it. <laughs> anyway, but we went to a bigger church with a lot more kids. And that was fun because I was in sixth grade, end of sixth grade. Um, so I was there for about two months and there were a lot more kids that I appreciated in their children's program before I was old enough to move up into the youth program, which was everybody from seventh grade through high school okay. and that was really fun at first because you know it was all it was probably a more familiar youth group experience instead of just like some dudes playing with dice like three <laughs> dudes playing with dice was my whole youth group before that oh, no. <laughs> and we would like talk with you like talk about star wars with the youth with with the main pastor who happened to be like young yeah. um but that was youth group. It was not lit. We would do puzzles sometimes. But then <laughs> when we went to the bigger church, they had a much more, at the time, modern idea. So they had like lights and edgier music and a band and a pinball machine. And they had like Halo and uh, video games that we could do. And they would like sell you pop and sodas and stuff. And so it was more fun. Like, I, I don't know that I learned anymore, but I actually like started establishing a community and I appreciated that. Yeah. But um, by the time 
I was in high school. I, I, my parents also, I, I was pretty bullied for a lot of racist stuff when I was very young because we grew up in a pretty rural area. Um, and so they moved me to a Christian school around the same time as my mom's conversion. And I converted too, just because it felt like the right thing. I was baptized when I was eight. Um, but I never felt fully comfortable, never felt like it was fully my thing. I was always excited to explore. And one thing that was really hard for me is I've always been inquisitive. I'm never afraid to ask a question if I don't understand or if I need, or if I need a point of clarification for something that I seem to be inconsistent. Mm. And at a certain point, especially as I got older, uh, because I was going to a Christian school and a Christian church, of course, um, three nights a week or two nights a week for church. And then every day in school, we'd have a theology course. I started asking questions that just like I was not getting satisfying answers to. And then I'd have divergent opinions and I wasn't allowed to voice those opinions and I wasn't allowed to ask questions or I was told just what to believe or how to feel instead of like what to think. And so I started like publicly saying these people are brainwashing us. Mm. I don't like this. I hate this. I don't want to do this. Do you remember what types of questions you were asking? Um, I mean, it's questions that I still don't. I mean, I have answers now, but they're not the <laughs> answers that I would have been allowed to believe at the time. It was stuff like, uh, Well, I saw a meme, actually. I saw an atheist meme, and it was like a bust of Plato or Socrates or Aristotle or something. And it was either like, either God is not good or God does not care. It was essentially like a, a thing about suffering. So I asked a teacher to get into suffering, and they pulled the... And then I brought up slavery, right? Because I was the black kid. Mm -hmm. The black kid. <clears throat> the one and only. Yeah. I, I, I was one of two black guys in my high school um, at any given time. Different black guys. But I was always one of two. So we were, we were few. But my graduating class was only 35. So it wasn't a huge school. Um, but yeah, I brought up slavery. And they responded that black people in the U.S. should be grateful for slavery because it led them to faith. Ugh. And I was like, okay, well. Wow. I mean, I guess if we're talking in the scope of like eternity, I, there's no reason that's wrong but that can't be right because then that's a justification for slavery but then we'd go into things like the old testament we, we I, I liked history since i was young yeah. we'd get into the old testament we'd be like yeah cool so joshua slew and like genuinely massacred and genocided everyone in the land that the jews wanted how was that fine and they're like well it was holy and god said and i'm like okay well like how was that different at the time you know we're talking the 2000s so people were still scared about jihad um, and everything from 9-11. And I was like, okay, so how is this different than the Muslims believing that their God told them that mm. they can kill people in yeah. the name of their goals, but like ours is fine. And then they were just like, well, ours is real. And I was like, <laughs> okay, cool. But like, you understand that they disagree with us. And so right. like, how can and we And they would it? say that, well, ours is real. Right. And so I'm like, so do we have any like, how we know we're right and they're wrong? And they were like, God, faith, belief. And I'm like, okay, well, all of these apply just as strongly to their claims. Mm. And so there's, there's nothing about us that makes us right other than just like we've been doing it, so we keep doing it. Yeah. And at a certain point, I struggled. And my, at that point, I had really unhealthy relationships to myself. Um, 
I had like impure thoughts because I was a teenage boy, right? Mm-hmm. And I hated myself for my perverse thoughts and sexual desires. Um, and thoughts about women that I had no... You were told to hate yourself for Yeah, and I had no way to discuss. It was like, ask God for forgiveness or whatever. And, like, they tried to be understanding. They tried to talk about, like, masturbation and pornography and all of that when I was in church. And I was just like, well, like, sure, but, like, I still hate myself. And, like, God forgives me or whatever. But, like, I should also feel like shit for, for being who... I am, and, like, I didn't know how to handle my hormones or my emotions, so I had, like, super low self-esteem because of that. And my mother never really understood me just because my my dad wasn't around, and he is a whole different type of person than my mom. And so... Your biological dad. Yeah, Yeah. I, I wasn't raised with my biological dad. And so between issues of, like, race and the subtle ways they affected my life that I didn't understand back then that I see now, and... Just the differences in my mother's personality and how she viewed the world versus how I innately did and just her inability to understand those things about me. We had a really tough relationship from the time I was probably 12 until I left for college. Mm. Um, And so I like actively hated my parents And, and things got worse after my little brother was born david he's my oldest brother and he was 10 years younger than me so by the time i was 12 i was like very isolated very alone i like had a lot of like suicidal ideation because i like felt like i was such a failure to god and my family and Mm -hmm. everything i understood about like morality or how you're supposed to be is not how i felt or like i didn't feel like i was a part of people or accepted or a community um and i and i was really low and so at a certain point i accepted that god was real Christianity was true, but I was not saved. Like, um, I had accepted God, I had accepted Jesus, but, like, I was somehow I was not, not worthy, I was that. not, yeah, I, I was not properly Christian. Hmm. And so I would try in youth group, and I would cry at the altars during the altar call and confess that I was a sinner and rack myself with guilt for years. Um... And I tried to exemplify Christian character and morals, but I never felt like I had a proper role model of somebody I could talk to. And then my senior year of high school, I actually did connect with another black guy from our church as part of a leadership program. And he was a good friend to me, but he had a very strong prosperity gospel and and a strong belief in miracles that I did not experience or see to work and he didn't seem to see them working either he just believed Mm. and so I have this dark joke that I like whenever I say something outlandish which I have a chaotic personality you would never say anything outlandish yeah I I say a lot of outlandish things just offer really overtly bad suggestions as a joke yeah uh and then when people are like Okay, well, the, the people at home sitting around the record yeah. players with their children, they might not know. They need to know. <laughs> um, but I, I, I have this joke, which is, if you believe hard enough, it'll happen. Yeah. And that's funny because you can't disprove that. Like, right. th- there's no way to interact or disprove the claim that if you believe hard enough, X will occur. Because if it doesn't occur, you didn't believe hard enough. And if it does occur, then <laughs> voila. You believed hard enough. Exactly. And it's, it's just like there's, there's no substance to it. And that was essentially my experience with the miraculous side of the faith. Um, 
And I really tried. I, I really wanted to appease God. But at a certain point, I just accepted that there was a hell and I was going to it because I was not a proper Christian and I could not be because I was morally bankrupt and somehow terribly divergent in my humanity. Looking back on that now, do you feel like you were morally bankrupt? No, I feel like I was a teenage boy who didn't have a man he could talk to about his hormones <laughs> and like didn't understand them yeah. and lived in a group of people that did not value my personality or perspective or inquisitiveness. Mm. And so instead of being, I, I had, I did have a teacher who applauded my inquisitiveness and instead of turning me away, he actually encouraged me to take more theology classes and would really, he would really work to answer my questions to the best of my ability. And I applauded that, but he was very much an exception and far from the rule to the point where I didn't appreciate that gift at the time. Mm. Um, yeah, but I, I appreciated it. He, he, he really did see my understanding, but the way he approached it was, you have a great aptitude for this, you have a great mind for theology, which I have a great mind for philosophy, but mm. they don't teach you philosophy, they teach you theology, which is the philosophy of how to stay a Christian. Um, or at least the way it was presented to me at that time. Right. So he encouraged me to stay into theology and less to like explore my own questions, but like explore them through their lens, which I think was the most he could have done in that context, because what's he going to say? Like, <laughs> build your own faith, young man. Mm -hmm. Your parents are paying me to keep you extra Christian. <laughs> like, you know, he's yeah. doing the best he could for his environment, but... You know, men with the best intentions perpetuate the worst ideas, so. Mm. Yeah. So did things change for you in college once you left home? <laughs> so I had a college that I kind of wanted to go to. It was called Wittenberg. It's in the middle of Ohio. I think I would have been miserable over time. But mm. I had wanted to go to Chicago since I was young. For my 10th birthday, my family took me to Chicago, and I thought it was awesome. I don't even remember where we went. I just thought it was like... <laughs> huge and beautiful and glorious and then my freshman year of high school um i did a missions trip to chicago in west lawndale which is like one of the poorer neighborhoods yeah. um and i loved it i loved the people i loved the culture i loved the look of the city i loved the feel of the city i thought it was gorgeous and i went back one other time in high school just to kind of putz about with some friends and i loved the city and i wanted to end up there after college, if not for college, but I was really poor and I did not understand the college admissions process as much as I could have. But by the time we got there, I had stopped asking questions as much. And so I, I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't know how to ask for help. And I was stressed and about your it. Your parents didn't go to college. So no, they didn't. Really they didn't kind of the first person really know how to help. Out. Yeah. So they gave it their best, but. It was a confusing process. So we visited a college in Ohio. I was going to go. My mom had this, like, my mom uses her emotions a lot, and she's very led by them. And she has now tied spiritual significance to whatever her emotions are. So um, she determined that that was not a good fit for me and would, like, cry in front of me and say, like, 
and begged me not to go there. And I was like, well, this is the cheapest, most affordable place. And that was my main concern because I knew I was going to have to go into debt for college. Yeah. And so she was like, okay, tell you what, some family friends, the Matsons, they're, they're visiting their son. He works at a college in Chicago. That could work for you. It's a Christian college. You'll like it. Wittenberg was like most colleges where it was Christian mm. back when it was founded in the 17 or 1800s or whatever. Yeah, and like now they're not. Like Harvard yeah. was too. But yeah. And Yale, all of them. Um, so it was that type of vibe. And my mom was afraid of the heathens. We went in the spring and it was gorgeous. And they had a beer garden. And she thought that was like wildly immoral. And there were a couple frat houses. And like the frat guys were like drunkenly like partying. Mm-hmm. And it was like in the day. And she was terrified that I would be one of those. Which she has no idea, but... Um, right, because alcohol doesn't exist in Christian colleges. Right, <laughs> right. So she felt better about me going to school. We had some family friends. Her mentor at the time was the Teresa Matson, the mother of one of the professors that I got close to at the college we went to, mm-hmm. um, which was Trinity. I ended up going there, of course. I visited. It was fine. It was closer to Chicago, though, which I appreciated. So it was more expensive by... A lot but my mom seemed at peace with it so I decided to go I didn't make my decision though I didn't inform the college that that's the college I was gonna go to until I think July <laughs> and college you go in August so yeah. it was a real I lesson think I thing. made my decision and like gave my intent like a year before you did which is so us yeah you have such a different perspective on that but yeah so we ended up meeting at that college and that's where you went yeah but the college was a christian college and whereas i was part of like non-denominational christian life before college by the time i got to college it was very aggressively denominational they don't think they're denominational but they believe they work in the reformed tradition which there are a couple reformed faiths which are very conservative sects of christianity very, very white, very ethnically Dutch, and not very open to change or other forms of expression or faith. And so not only did I have, I've I've been an ambitious little bastard for my whole life, and so I wanted leadership abilities and power and influence on campus. And to do that, I had to do the song and dance. I had to play the Dutch game. I had to not be the offended black guy when people slighted me. Um, so that really tied whiteness to Christianity for me in a way that I had never expected before, but it was just a smothering. Um, I, my senior year of college was the furthest from religion that I had been, but I still gave it a go. I still tried to go to church. I tried to find churches. And at times I felt like I was doing Christianity well. Um, but I, I never felt at peace. I never felt comfortable. I never felt accepted. I definitely didn't feel like I was a part of the community because of the way religious expression was expected and treated. I had how, the wrong how personality. How do you feel like you did not fit those expectations? Yeah, there's, there's a certain personality of the proper white Christian Dutchman um, where they like believe in hard work and are excited about prosperity through hard work and... They have a chipper attitude and they fight for what they believe in with complete conviction. 
and they don't go against the status quo, and they sing the songs, monotone, they don't look happy about it, but they sing the songs and they go to church, and they give money to the group of men going to the tea, going to Haiti to dig the well that is necessary to send a bunch of white dudes over instead of hiring some contractors abroad. Mm -hmm. um, there were just a lot of cultural norms that I wasn't comfortable with, and expressing a divergent opinion on traditions is unacceptable. And a sign of a type of unreasonable questioning. There's, they say like, dig deep and ask questions and have like an intellectual faith, but at a certain point, the answers just become, well, I have faith. And I tried to dig deep. I talked to men that I tried to look up to and tried to respect and tried to want to emulate. And I said tried to want to emulate because I, I don't really think I've ever had strong role models of people that I really wanted to be. Mm. Um, but yeah, it, it, it really showed me the ways in which, for the first time, Christianity was designed to keep a system going. Mm. And, and I hadn't seen that to the extent, like I thought people, they just wanted people to be Christian because like it's the right thing to do and because you're eternal soul when I was in high school. But in college, I started to see the way it was connected to like an economic and social system wow. and way of being yeah. that I hadn't really understood before. And part of it was just learning more about the world and the way it works and different types of histories and all of that. but. And a huge part of this was my education and communication. Um, there's something called like manufacturing consent or whatever. And I saw the ways in which that integrated itself nicely into the way Christianity was performed on my campus. And there were just some like personality traits of people like in, in, that, in that area. You don't confront people about problems. Right. And I believe that if there is a problem, you, you address them personally, one-to-one. -one. And that was standoffish and aggressive uh, and intimidating or whatever. And, and my goal was never intimidation. My goal was peace, you know, uh, peace through understanding and communication. And th there, there's a million little things like that. Um, I have a question for you. Yeah. Um, as someone who was there... I think a lot of people who knew you in college saw you as someone who was very successful. You did have a lot of leadership positions. You did have a lot of um, employment. You had a lot of um, seeming power and influence in a lot of different types of areas of the college. You knew just about everyone, and most people knew you. Um, how did those, well, I'm saying this mostly because we've talked about this, like how was that either a false sense of success? Um, do you think that that was actually power and influence? What was that like for you playing those parts? Mm -hmm, for sure. So I went to college between 2013 and 2017 and that was right in the midst of the, oh God, we need diversity. 
And so the school decided to have all these stats and data and figures about the ethnic breakdown and all these surveys. And nothing is better to prove that you are a diverse campus than having diverse men in leadership positions. The problem with that is I have brown skin, but I was raised in a white community by a white mother. And we were in Chicago, so the actual black students from Chicago knew that. And I fit in somewhere as a biracial person, and this is just the biracial experience, somewhere between them and the Dutch kids, who I had nothing in common with either, because they both had very strong, unique, different cultures to what I had experienced. Um, And so because I knew how to play the white game, because it was... What I found is that I was raised to be a white man, but because I'm not a white man, I'm not allowed to perform whiteness. Uh And so part of that is an interaction with my spirituality as well. But my success on campus, there was mandated, like you, for, for the leadership roles I had in the dorm, I was an RA and then my senior year, I was kind of over the RAs in the upperclassmen dorms, um, which was a pretty good leadership role. But part of that was it was required that you attended um, our college's little chapel sessions, mm-hmm. which wasn't for me. It didn't serve me. I didn't get anything from it. I didn't appreciate it. I didn't find it valuable. I tried. Sometimes I'd like appear to be into it. Or I'd like convince myself that I was into it to make it more tolerable. And I just stopped going. I quit caring. There wasn't attendance. Nobody said anything to me about it. But I started to see the ways in which I would make the same moves and try the same tries, I guess. Try the same avenues as some of my white friends who understood the Dutch culture or could play the Dutch game a little bit better than me. And I saw the ways in which they were given power or the ways in which I had my best friend, I would say at this point from college, besides Olivia, of course, is Josiah. And he's, he is black and Puerto Rican. And I saw the ways in which he and I were not in a lot of the same rooms. We are interchangeable where a lot of our peers would be in all the same rooms. It would be he or I, they would have Josiah or Devin. Um, because they only needed together, but I definitely can see how that was true. Now thinking back, like, yeah, you never really were in the same spaces. Sometimes there was a black woman who would, was pretty successful to Noelle. Sometimes Noelle would be in the same room as Josiah or I, because she was a woman. Um, or Noelle and I would be in the same space or Noelle and Josiah. I, I don't know which one I said, but, um, Josiah and I were almost never present and I, we could both see and we talked about the ways in which like they only needed one of us for this, right? Right. Um, and I was always apprehensive to take leadership roles for the diverse students because I knew I did not represent them. I grew up as white as you could be except that I started to realize that my perspective was appreciated because white people could feel like they were being diverse and they knew diverse people and knew diverse perspectives without having to do any of the work of actually changing their perspective. Because I was culturally 
reasonably close to assimilated to what they were expecting right. a diverse man to be. And I was happy to fill that role for a long time because it got me into the rooms I wanted to be in. Um, but by my junior or senior year, I realized that I was in the room, but I didn't have influence or power. I was there as a token, but not as a force. Hmm. Um, and I found that really frustrating over time. I would have ideas that would go against the group and I would explain why my ideas were different. And they were like, okay, cool. But like, this is our tradition. This is like what we do here. This is what like the majority of us do and think and like find valuable. And to me, that made sense because I was like, right, well, the majority of the people should have some power, but I wasn't asking for like institutions to go away. I was asking for maybe some smaller differences. I, I know, um, a lot of my peers experienced similar things and we were partially demotivated as a group when one of us would face rejection um, because we would interact with each other, the, the young black leaders, but, or, or young brown leaders, honestly, of any, of any color. Mm -hmm. um, but we had another issue too because we had like a security guard who would constantly offend students of color, treat us differently, like right out in the open. And, we re and we'd report it. And this was one thing that really frustrated me. I would report it and I was the head of our dorms. Right. Right. That like, was part of your job was to make sure people... People were safe were and safe. felt part yeah. of the community. And people would say, oh, well, he's just doing him. What are we going to do? And to this day, he still works there. I, mm -hmm. I, just, I found out like four years after I've graduated, he still works there. Um, and, and so... And, and I would ask for like uh, mentorship opportunities from people and they would give me time of day, but they wouldn't maintain the relationship or sustain it. Um, and then I would see them do that with other people who they thought aligned with them better. And, and I found that odd, to say the least. Um, but at a certain point, I no longer desired the best for the campus because I saw that they allowed me to be different because I was just different enough to feel different for them without being different enough for them to feel like they needed to change. Mm -hmm. Um, but I was pretty vo vocal about the ways in which I was not about what the campus was about, especially because I was in res life, residence life. Um, a lot of people think about residence life as primarily like a rules enforcement, especially at a Christian college, like yeah. making sure people aren't doing specific things or being in opposite genders dorm rooms after hours or whatever. And I didn't care about that. And I was really, very outspoken about how little I cared about enforcing those things and how little support I had in supporting the rules of the dorms so long as people felt like they were respecting themselves and each other. Um, as long as like roommates were comfortable living with each other and stuff, I, like that was all I ever thought was important and I believe that's what the rules were for. Um, you know, the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. Mm -hmm. And the college was like, knew that, like I told that to officials and they understood that. Um, and so I think, I think that was the value of me to them. It was not even necessarily that I got everywhere on my own merits. I was just one of a very few people and I was willing to try and like put my effort forward. And because of that, I brought honor to the school. And I found out years after I had graduated, there were still circulating pamphlets with my face on the front of it right. around to just to show how diverse Trinity was, you know? Um, and that feels kind of dishonest to me. And of course I went to the photo shoots cause I wanted to be remembered and yeah. 
I didn't really understand the effect I was having. But now I understand like my face was used to convince other brown folks that this was a place where they would be safe and comfortable and valued when that was not the case. And I just hadn't thought through all of that. Yeah. And probably convince white folks that this is like a like cool, interesting, diverse, exotic college. Um, more so than which is like that's never the attitude that people should have really when they're searching for things but yeah I think I know for me as a white student I like when I was visiting colleges too I would look at their pamphlets but then I would also like look around at the students when I would visit and be like okay does this match up and often they wouldn't yeah yeah and I know that to be true because I had a few friends who I hung out with because we were one of very few POCs in our college. And most of us would get invited to these photo shoots. Most of my right. colored friends. Who I was like, never invited to a photo shoot because yeah. I looked like everyone else in the college. And there were hundreds yeah. of blonde, white people all over our school. But right. my Indian friend, my black friend, me, my Puerto Rican friend, like yeah. we were always invited. Right. And how does that tie into Christianity for you? I think I started to realize that that's not just a college problem. That's very much how Christianity in America has treated people who aren't white. Um, I think the college learned it from the faith that inspired its origins. Mm. It, it's not a unique college ploy. And sure, a lot of colleges, if not all colleges, do this thing. Um, but yeah, the, the, these were not, I, I, think, I think so much of the colonizer European identity is affiliated with Christianity and the way it still plays out. Mm-hmm. I was a student of history and so I could see this, but it took a while for me to like fully comprehend and see the ways, it, it took a while for me developmentally to realize that history was not in the past but was still happening now and had like very visible implications. Um, How do you see, I mean, you're kind of talking about this already, but how can you tie for us a little bit more specifically how colonization and Christianity are still really closely tied? Mm -hmm. So Christianity provides the basis of a tradition. And I think this is a lot of the reason why white supremacy, why, why when people were marching on the Capitol who were called white supremacists were flying a lot of Christian flags mm-hmm. and why Trump has so much support from evangelicals, even though he has very little in line with their actual values, is that it provides a calling card basis of digestible beliefs that a large group of people believe in and have traditionally believed in judeo-christian values you hear it all the time and because it is a cultural tradition that so many people can identify with it instills pride and a unique sense of culture that because it is what people are comfortable with and the closest thing they have to an identity because so many white people have lost their sense of unique cultural identity because we have colonized we i say as americans have colonized so much of the world into our way thanks to the british and then our own 
violent and very successful cultural endeavors that many white Americans don't understand what their culture is. They, don't, they feel so inundated with the normalcy of their lives that they don't know what their culture is. And part of that is an understanding of Christianity. But when somebody says, like, your, your Judeo-Christian values, your cultural way of life is being threatened, that riles them up to fear, and they want to defend it. And it's getting, getting to the point where people are afraid of changing it. Um, but it's, it's made more palatable in the 21st century and it was always made more palatable, even when we were doing crusades with the writer of, well, we are giving them eternal salvation. We are giving them the one true way to peace on earth and peace with your God and peace within yourself. So, you know, the, it, it is a successful tool for galvanizing men to risk their lives in something like a crusade, and it hasn't gone away. It's changed. It's adapted. We're not necessarily saying, "Go, you know, go kill the pagans, and take back Jerusalem or Holy City." But we are saying, "Go kill Muslims for your country." I, I think at this point, um, the idea of America and Christianity and whiteness have all become kind of intertwined in something that a lot of white folks can't can't distinguish anymore um actually my friend josiah who i was talking about as like the other prominent brown leader he was a psychology student he did an experiment and one of the questions on his survey to understand uh, racial identity at our college was what is your ethnicity and one kid wrote dutch crc which was their abbreviation oh, for their religious sect of christianity meaning that he believed that his ethnicity was Dutch and also his religion. It was intertwined. And part of that is like American Dutch, because if you went back to the Netherlands, he would think they're heathens. Yeah, that's true, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, because the Dutch people yeah. who are in, who came over to America, like they... It's a very conservative community. Yes, yeah. Unlike Amsterdam. Right. <laughs> okay, so college, you learned a lot. Um, you stayed in Chicago area right away, um, eventually moved to Washington and then later to LA. Um, what were those years like for you spiritually? So right after I left college, I was done with Christianity. Um, what was that decision for you? I had always felt like it was, I, I had never, I, I, I would have no longer than a six month period of feeling like I could be a Christian and like I was doing it well, and like church was the thing I could interact with. Um, I have this experience when I go to churches, is if I go to a black church, I am lost and very frustrated by one, how I feel that it is a colonial holdover and we're allowing ourselves to be imprisoned by the white man's vision of subservience for us. Mm. Two, Culturally, I have just a lot of issue with it that anybody who was brought up white would probably have with it. Um, the ways in which pastors in a lot of black communities tend to take a far more all-encompassing role over their community members' lives. Also, it's hours long. And I don't, <laughs> I'm just, I'm not going to give you 
five hours or, or more. I, I don't have the energy for that. I don't. I just don't. I can't do it. I've tried. Yeah. And especially because it's like so much of it is listening. It's not like I don't want to sing. I don't want to go sing with a bunch of people. I don't want to do that. Every week, maybe once or twice a year is like part of a thing, but not like every week. For hours, and I don't want to listen to the same person talk for hours every week. I don't want to see the same people dance for hours. Like, I, I can't do that. And white churches, white churches are so eager to show me that they're not racist that they will ignore all of my white peers, like if I go with a group of white people who have never been to a church, mm -hmm. they will ignore all of my white peers and 45 people will greet me and say they're so glad to see me. <laughs> to the point where I'm like, okay, if you had just treated me like a normal person, I would feel far less on edge than I am now that every individual and somebody like summoned your actual pastor to come talk to me. Like, yeah. I, I just want to be a dude. I, I came to check it out. I'm not trying to make a lifelong commitment to your cult. Like... Just treat me like a normal person. Let me sit in the back and like skitter out until I feel comfortable. But I don't need VIP access for you guys to like meet your diversity quota. And so it, it, it's frustrating. Like so much of my Christian experience is tied into the ways in which whiteness refuses to let me just be a person. And reminds me that I am a brown person because they want me to be involved until I am not them, until I am not who they want me to be. And, and I've seen this enough that I, I'm just not interested in that. And this is all to say only cultural frustrations I have and not at all my actual philosophical, logical, moral concerns. Yeah. Um, yeah, so right out of college, with none of the cultural pressure, I began accepting what life would look like outside of the church and outside of Christianity at large. And it was hard. I it was really agonizing. Like, I was re-accepting the possibility and somehow trying to find a way of explaining my way out of hell. Um, I found some early comfort in C.S. Lewis's fantasy series. There is some evidence that C.S. Lewis believed that non-Christians who followed their false god with nobility would find their way to the true god. Uh, that's kind of hinted at in one of the, I think, the last book of the Narnia series. Um, I don't know if he was ever so bold as to say that directly. Okay. Um, but yeah, there's Aslan, the lion who represents God, but, and then there's a false God, Tash and, uh, a heathen abomination amalgamation called Tashlin, um, who they try to like say is the same God and a follower of Tash is like a very good, like devout moral person who follows a false God well. And he is like praised by Aslan as a loyal follower of his, his own. Um, which it doesn't take a huge stretch of the imagination to see what that meant. So I took some, some encouragement that one of the great Christian thinkers who most Christians venerate um, had 
a little bit of comfort for the intellectually rigorous apostate. Um, but my desire to leave wasn't just cultural. I mean, there were spiritual questions that I, I could not accept and a lot of really convenient alternatives to the reasoning behind the Bible. Like, for, for example, who would benefit from the Bible the most? The people who we knew wrote it, the Jewish tribes. Because if you are able to convince the world that you are a chosen people who are to be protected, well, that's kind of life on easy street. And clearly, the Jews, I'm not saying, have had life on easy street. But they, you know, they do command the respect of the largest religion in the world. Um, and they have powerful allies like the U.S. who will back them since they were incorporated into a nation, uh, the, the nation of Israel. Um, and I was a strong Zionist throughout college, actually. I didn't start to question that until I stayed in a commune and I became aware of some of the like human rights violations and the history behind how Israel came to be a landmass and how mm. colonialism was tied to whiteness and spirituality in creating the Jewish state. Um, and I, you know, this is not about like politics, but I, I'm not anti-Jews living in that area, but I, I think it takes a very loose interpretation <laughs> of human rights to think that the nation of Israel is is is, uh, is treating people morally hmm. um and and I don't have any answers there and I'm not an expert but it took me a while to even question that because I accepted it as like a holy nation brought about by God um but then there's the question of suffering which is a common one I don't Um, sin or suffering. And there's no situation in which God is all-powerful and desires good things for us, but allows suffering. It fundamentally, like, you, you cannot, I, at least for me, I could not believe that God is all-powerful, which is a fundamental claim of Christianity, that God desires the best for us and all mankind, which is the like foundational to believing that God is good, and that he allows evil to even exist, because if it is his will that no man shall perish, but he created a hell. And then a lot of Christians wanted to come back with, well, the Bible says for the wages of sin are death. And I respond with, who chose the wages? Hmm. This system did not predate an all-powerful God. God made the system in which blood is the requirement for sin. Hmm. When Satan fell from heaven, God could have chosen to evaporate him or to change his will no harm, no foul. Hmm. And people say, well, creatures need free will. But if there is an all-powerful being 
that has the best of intentions. I can't imagine a situation in which he would not. It is only because I do believe that if there is this, this version of God and we are to believe that his ways are higher than our ways, I do not believe that it makes sense to limit him to say that there's no way that we can't have free will without evil. That that just seems like a very weak argument to me. Then um, the idea of of a hell only makes sense if God is not some of the things that He is supposed to be. Because if God was not said to be a loving God who only wanted good things for all men, then okay. If if we were in a system where God was a God of war and he was our one true God, then okay, the strong survive, die with a sword in your hand, and let's party in Valhalla. Mm. But that's not the God that's written into our scriptures, and it is completely inconsistent, I think. God could not be for me all the things that he says he is. Um, What's more is the sectionalization of scripture. A lot of Christians are expected to believe that the Holy Spirit comes into them and influences them. And that is the will of God working through you. That's how he talks to you. That's how you live a good Christian life. You submit to the will of the Spirit in your life. That's, that's at least what many Christians believe in, especially in the traditions I was brought up in. If that was the case, it seems to me that there couldn't be so many Christians consistently doing poor, that doing bad, doing wrong. Especially if they genuinely sought God. Mm-hmm. Which means one of two things is happening. Either God is not powerful enough to insert himself into the people who seek him. Or he is so easy to manipulate that a mere man with a little bit of the devil in him can lead whole groups, if not most actual Christians, astray. Because I can't tell you how many times I've heard Christians say that other sects of Christians aren't the right Christians or aren't real Christians or aren't saved. Right. And so God gives individual Christians the authority to say that all other religions are wrong, but also most Christians are wrong in going to hell, which seems a little too convenient to me and a little too impotent of God. Because if God is all-powerful and really desires that we follow him, and if you believe in the natural revelation of Scripture, the, the doctrine that Christ has given us, the Father has given us, everything just through the land that we need to follow him, that we don't need to be told that the, the nature itself sings his praises. That all men should know him, that no man has an excuse not to know God because of the natural revelation. Then God must have allowed other religions to have some truth. And so I started to study other religions. I started this in high school, actually. I did a report on Muhammad. We had to do a report on the life of anybody, and I wanted to be a little rebellious bastard. So I chose the scariest religion that we knew of, which was Islam at the time, and decided to do a report on their founder. And I learned a lot of great stuff. Like, nobody ever told me that they believed in the Old Testament and built off of the New Testament. Mm. Nobody ever explained that to me. I learned that on my own. And I have extensive theological training at that point. Um, and the majority of what they believe is the same shit. Like, <laughs> they have some different things, and they've 
taken some different stances, but also the majority of what I was hearing about Islam was fear-mongering. It wasn't right. even what the majority of Muslims believe. Right. Um, and so, like, reading books published by Muslims about Islam and listening to what actual Muslims have to say and how they're, like, most of them don't want to live in or even believe in having a theocracy like we believe that all Muslim states are. But even the theocracies that exist now, like, closer to theocracies, like in Saudi Arabia, or not Saudi Arabia. Uh, where is it? Uh, maybe maybe Iran. I think Iran is the closest. That That was the direct response to them overthrowing, like, rallying around a religious movement to create an identity counter to the Western puppet president that we placed there uh, back before they overthrew him. And so, like, of course they have problem with it. They, they were being occupied. And, of course, theocracy would be a powerful way to galvanize people because religion has always proven to be a very powerful way to galvanize people, to not fear their own deaths, and to advance any other man's idea. And I was trained that about other religions, about how, about how it was effective at convincing men to throw away their lives for honor or glory or somebody else's ideas. And that's what other religions were for. And I was like, okay, well, how is this different? How is our religion different? And the more I looked for differences between our true religion and everybody else's false religion, the less I saw. Until I no longer could, with any sense of honesty or integrity, say that I believed that I served the one true God. And I brought these fears and frustrations and claims to the spiritual men I believed in and trusted and the chaplains of our college. And at a certain point it, for them, it always came back to, well, I choose to believe or I just have faith, which at the point that somebody's saying that, it means there is no reasoning. They are succumbing tradi tradition. It is laziness. It is comfort. It is security. It allows for a system to continue that they are comfortable in. And I was never comfortable in that system, so I had no reason to choose it because it didn't work for me. Mm. Um, and one of my good friends was honest enough to say that to me uh, mm. in college because he was questioning the same time I was. And whereas I left, he stayed, and he said, honestly, the system and the lifestyle, even if it's false, it works for me. Yeah. And, and I think it that's does work for a lot of people. shit, but at least recognizing that and being honest about it is admirable in its own way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I could go on about that all day. But <laughs> at least to say, for a long time I was lost and I felt like my spirituality was up in the air. I actually left Chicago after a time and went to Washington to just kind of retreat and take some time with myself. I took a low-stress job as a bartender. Mm -hmm. So I could just like spend time learning like philosophy and studying other religions. And I think the most valuable things I found um, in Spokane was I started studying the occult. I was like, okay, the scariest stuff that my parents warned me about, like, let's see what they have to say. Let's see what the Church of Satan has to say. And it was incredible what I found. Um, I think the most helpful thing I saw was from, oh, not Zoroastrian, I forgot, a uh, hermetic. Now, hermetics are an occult tradition that pulls on Jewish mysticism. And... I love V for Vendetta, the movie. I saw it when I was probably 12. I was always a rebellious little ass, and that was a whole movie about organized revolution. 
Um, I loved it. The man who wrote that, well, I, that's a movie that was adapted from a graphic novel written for DC Comics. The man who wrote that in the 80s, his name is Alan Moore. And he, he calls himself a grand wizard of the hermetic order. Wow. And I was like, I've got to hear what this guy's into. <laughs> like, I like, he also, he also wrote Watchmen. Um, and then The Killing Joke, which is a very famous Batman graphic novel. So I have been influenced by a lot of his work. And so I, I was like, okay, well, let's see what he believed. Not that he's somebody I look up to, but I have nothing. Let's build something. Let's just hear what the man has to say. And he had the quote that has probably been the most memorable for me in my whole spiritual journey, which was the only place that I can say without a doubt that God exists is in the minds of men, Hmm. which really revolutionized the way I thought about God and spirituality, because I I totally believe there is a force that ties us together and I feel it and I see it. And I, and I understand that there are things that we don't yet have a way to explain that happened between humans interpersonally. And I realized the power of God is absolutely manifest in the world through those who believe in him. I mean, though great good and bad occur, God smiting a town occurs when the U.S. drops a bomb because we are religiously motivated. A village or a person. God's providence manifests itself when a neighbor anonymously pays an unemployed neighbor's mortgage. Like, Mm. that is for them truly the power of God. And that's how it manifests and that's how it works. We are God to each other through our shared belief in this other thing and through our responsibility to each other. And that really helped me fall in line and was kind of a gateway for me to some more Eastern lines of thought. And so I started from there to look into Hinduism a little bit just because it's like the one that people in the U.S. seem to get off on being Hindus and finding it cool and Buddhism. And so I learned a little bit about it at first casually. But then the one that I found most impressive was um, the Sikh religion. And I started getting into that more honestly since I moved to L.A. just as a way of understanding my own relationship like God and faith in the world and help me get to a place that I'm actually really comfortable. And so I, I could never call myself a Christian. I don't believe that the Christian God exists as described. But I think there could be a God, some creative force, some kind of figure that somehow binds us. And it might be a collective hallucination or it might be an actual force out there. But I don't believe that he is the specifically defined God that required specific sacrifices from men at a certain point. I think if he is out there, he is very con. He's very kind, letting us do our own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the forces of nature work, and they affect us. And I think, I mean, humans of all traditions have been calling nature God in some yeah, way, rather they're time. polytheists or panentheists or pantheists like however you look at it like we have always looked at the natural word world as god even in the christian tradition we say you know nature itself sings his praises right right and when a town is befallen by a natural disaster you have some prophet or priest or teacher saying oh well this was the judgment of god uh god needed to cleanse this place or this is because of their sin 
I was just talking to my aunt. So I'm biracial and my, my black side is Haitian. Um, and I was just talking to my aunt who goes to Haiti periodically with my grandparents. And she said, yeah, when, when Haiti had the big series of natural disasters back a decade or so ago, a lot of Christian outlets were saying this is judgment for them selling their souls for independence because mm. there was a popular belief that the only reason the Haitian slave revolt was able to defeat Napoleon, which was Napoleon's first major defeat, was losing Haiti to a slave right. revolt, <laughs> which is why I feel like it's the most badass cultural heritage that I know nothing about and I'm yeah. so disappointed that I'm not more connected to it. But... And that's why it's such a poor country to this day, because no Western, like they were blacklisted by every Western power to avoid other slave revolts in all their colonies. Um, Until it created generational forces that are very difficult to return at this point. But people, Christians were saying in this day and age, you know, that that slave revolt happened in the 1700s, 1800s, 1800s, I think. Yeah. and people were saying in, you know, the 2000s, the, hate, the natural disaster that happened happened because the Satians <sighs> sold their soul to the devil to gain independence. Oof. And so, so people have been calling God all of us. God is the church, right? God is yeah. the body of Christ. And I, and I think we, most religions have recognized that. And I, and I very much believe that that God is us and God is the land and the natural world. And it's some mix of that and some other type of thing that I can't quantify. But what I love about Sikhism is that it doesn't care. Mm. They don't have a formal scripture like a lot of other religions. Like, you know, Christians have our Bible and then Muslims have like the Quran and there are several major holy texts in uh, Hinduism. But... In Sikhism, it's just like essentially a book of like vibes, honestly. (laughs) It's called the Guru Granth Satib, and a real Sikh would probably not love the way I describe it because I I don't want to be one of them because they have their rules and their traditions too, as does anything with enough people over a few hundred years. But their scripture was finalized in the 1700s. The religion is older than that, but... Essentially, it was born in India and was meant to be a way to help bring peace between the Muslims and the Hindus who were fighting each other to death. It was meant to be a new way. So this book of vibes, as I like to think about it, contains writing from um, Shia Muslims, which is the mystical sect Hey everyone, just wanted to make a quick insert here. Devin requested we make a correction. So instead of Shia, the accurate term is Sufi. As well as uh, Hindu mystics, in addition to the actual six themselves. Mm. And it was just essentially like some wise words, some ways toward peace, some ways of being. Um, It's also pretty erotic because mysticism is all about the direct experience of God in trying to make that something that humans can like understand. We often evoke erotic imagery because it's like (laughs) the best experience most humans interact with. Um, So it's kind of funny in that regard because people are like pretty hard for God. Um, (laughs) 
or the idea of God. And, and the, the religion basically believes a lot of Eastern things. So there's reincarnation and karma. Um, but it's less about what you believe and it's more about just like helping, being a good person, listening. My favorite thing, my, my favorite thing that I heard was listening. It goes on and there's the way it's written. It's um, very hymnal in nature. It's like Psalms, but the whole time and it's long. And so it's very repetitive. They say the same thing over and over, but they say something along the lines of like listening will bring peace to men. Listening dispels all strife. Listening mm. heals lands. Listening this, listening that. And it's essential just like listen to each other. Just like we're all doing the same thing. But the religion, um, it was really big on gender equality back in the 1700s. Mm. It believes that religion is irrelevant as long as you're living in peace and living in harmony with man and the land and God because um, that's what it's about to them. It's not about believing in Jesus or you're going to hell. It's not about doing a specific ritual and they have their rituals that you do and you're, you should do and they, the religion requires that you abstain from alcohol um, for some. Obviously there's sex at this point as well and some can drink but um, it's, it's not a monolith like any religion but they're incredibly synergistic in their approach to things. And it was beautiful to see a whole tradition of people see a few religions that weren't working mm. and try to make a system that worked and address the issues and talk about what really does matter and what is important and what is valuable. Yeah. And it's just really beautiful. It was very inspiring and it really helped me come to peace with my own lostness. And while I don't necessarily have... a strong like sense of what will happen when I die. I don't have dread. Even understanding, I have a cousin who, while I intellectually learn about new religions, he wholeheartedly just invests. <laughs> like he moved to a synagogue, just like lives at a, at a synagogue and wanted to start converting into Judaism. Did about a year into it, realized that Judaism didn't really want him because Judaism is not big on converts mm -hmm. and the conversion process is like intentionally difficult. And I'm sure Jews will disagree with me in some type of way. This is coming from him yeah. who is a disgruntled 25 year old. <laughs> <laughs> but he was telling me that the sect of Judaism that he believes in believes that there's less of a hell and more of a varied length purgatory. Hmm. Um, and that you don't need to be a Jew as long as you're righteous. Hmm. And that's Judaism. Yeah. That's Judaism. Like the foundation of Christianity. And if Jews aren't stressed about me not being a Jew, then I feel like... You don't have to be that stressed either. Yeah. yeah. Like I don't have to be that stressed about not being a Christian. I mean... I, I saw a joke. Uh, back in the early days of memes before they followed modern formats. But it was essentially a college student had to write a paper in a physics class in which he found the scientific temperature of hell. Hmm. And he started the paper with the premise of because every religion believes that every other religion is wrong, 
we can all assume that we're all going to hell. Mm. <laughs> and based on hell being the core of the earth and blah, 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 and pressure. Mm. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's a good point. If we all believe that we're all going to hell, somebody's got to be right. Meaning there is a really dick of a god out there somewhere mm. who is like making no major action to see this happen other than just like letting some humans who can die and corrupt his word spread his word for him because he he shows up like he showed up to paul he was jesus for a while he can he just chooses not to because we have to learn by faith mm. which is no kindness mm. um people like to make analogies of god as a father to us but as a parent do you discipline your children by saying, uh, here are these rules. The price of failure is death. <laughs> or you can believe and, in me and give me everything you have forever. Also, if you do anything wrong, I won't tell you until you die. <laughs> and then I will punish you eternally. Yeah. <laughs> like if you don't do it quite well enough. Also... Somebody might tell you a different set of rules that feels the same or similar, but it will actually be wrong, and I will punish you eternally because of that. Right. Um, that that's that's not that's not in line with the character of the God described in Scripture, and it's, it's part of what is in there. So, um, yeah, I think I think eventually I, I just came to peace with believing in some form of natural humanistic something and, and, and I still grow in ways like I'm still unsure about where I fall with eating creatures I understand that it is it is natural because creatures eat other creatures and we are creatures so maybe it's permissible but if it is our goal to live righteously and interact positively with other men in people, not men, I'm sorry. Like, all scripture is so gendered yeah. that I talk like that when I talk about it. But um, but to live peaceably with other people, then we should rise above the creatures, right? Mm. And so if we don't kill other humans, should we also not kill other animals? Should, like, would that be a part of righteousness if I believe that God is me and you and the land and the weather? and random and not caring for me and not listening to me and not attentive, but that we will all benefit if we individually strive toward righteousness. Maybe. And so I'm still developing that because I think our Christianity is very comfortable being very selfish. Mm. Especially, and, and I was just, I came of age with Dutch Christianity it is very excited to let you be a capitalist who exploits other people for your personal wealth. I mean, that's the Dutch way. Mm. Um, and they'll say hard work, but at this point, most of the Dutch people I know are business owners and right. they ex exploit a lot of Mexican labor in the places that I saw where I was living. Uh, a lot of poor black folks in the Dutch promised lands as well who yeah. work for these Dutch owned businesses. Um, yeah. And, and, and to me, that's just part of the ways in which colonialism, the, the comfort of white Europeans having brown folks 
work for them without sharing in the rewards um, is all intertwined. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very much for sharing your journey thus far. Um, obviously, this is going to have to be a two-parter, but that's no surprise. So um, I definitely learned some things about you. It was really fun for me to hear everything in kind of one fell swoop instead of sprinkled in throughout years of friendship and dating. Um, but yeah, we'll catch up with you again for some more in-depth exploration of kind of what we were just talking about. But thank you for sharing that with me. Yeah, thanks. Um, if you made it this far, <laughs> we have no sponsor. <laughs> we don't get paid. We have jobs. They're fine jobs for now. It's true. We're glad you were here, though. Whoever you are, we probably know you personally, and we love you. You're great. Yeah. That's it. Thanks, everybody.